Many of you know uh, I am a Michigan fan, and I've been a Michigan football fan, Michigan sports fan, uh, the University of Michigan for many, many years. And uh, not that you care, but that is a trivial interest that I have. And I would say one of the happiest moments of my life. Uh, this will be very carnal. I'll just give you a heads up. One of the happiest moments of my life was when my, my son became a Michigan fan. Uh, for I was, It was touch and go there for a minute. Up until fifth grade, I don't think he had an interest in sports at all. He was a brainiac and wanted to talk about whales and science. And I got to the point where I started dodging him in the house because he was always ready for a quiz. Like, give me these pop quizzes. I was like, man, I have no idea. I can't even spell what you're asking me, you know? Uh, but I remember the night when he became a Michigan fan, and I thought, yes, praise the Lord. Like, he was in. He cried when Michigan lost. I was like, it's my boy. It's my boy. <laughs> Michigan is the winningest Division I college football program in history. We've won 43 Big Ten conference titles, three Heisman Trophy winners. We have the largest stadium in the country a few weeks ago for the Michigan State game. One of our arch rivals, over 111,000 fans. Michigan is an historic and premier program. It's a global brand. But on September the 1st of 2007, Michigan found itself on the wrong side of history. We faced a school from North Carolina by the name of Appalachian State, a small school. <laughs> this game was supposed to be a tune-up for Michigan. We came into this game ranked as the fifth best team in the country. Michigan was such a favorite in that game that the Las Vegas sports books didn't even post a line. I mean, this was just going to be all we had to do was show up, basically. So everybody thought. But in front of 109,218 fans, Appalachian State made history as the first FCS school to beat a ranked FBS school. One of our players said this. He said, it might be embarrassing to admit, but there were people asking us, who is App State? Where are they from? Why do you guys even schedule that kind of team? And his response was, we're ranked nationally and we're just trying to tune up for tougher games. Anyone that told you they thought we had a chance at losing that game is lying, he said. There wasn't anyone on that team that thought we even had a remote chance of losing. We're enjoying a great season as a church, are we not? The season of praise and adoration over what God has done in these 15 years at MBT. 15 years ago, a man with a burden and a very small group of people trusted God and followed what he believed God had put on his heart to do. And today, we have full-time personnel. Today, we have two services. Today, we, we, we have more buildings. We have a growing and thriving Bible Institute. We've planted three New Testament local churches. I think we can say that things are going pretty well. I think we can say amen. I think we can say praise the Lord. Look at 
all that God has done and all that he's doing, but have we not seen this before? We have. One of the greatest victories in Scripture was Israel's victory at Jericho. Jericho was the strongest fortress in the land of Canaan. The walls of Jericho were so impressive that we know that Rahab's house was built upon that wall. That's how impressive and fortified those walls were. But after that great victory in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua chapter 7 begins with an ominous but. And that's where we start this morning. Joshua 7, verse 1, but. So, (laughs) this is going to be a contrast now to where we've been, to what we've just experienced in chapter 6. We're going in a different direction now. And it won't be the direction of victory. This is going to be different. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. Up until this point in Joshua, everything seemed to be going very well. But the reality was, Israel did two things at Jericho. They both succeeded and they failed. It was a great victory. They succeeded, but there was a great failure at Jericho as well. God had given very clear instructions in Joshua chapter 6 that Israel was to keep itself from the accursed thing. They were. And if they failed to do that, they would make themselves accursed and make the camp accursed. God made this very clear. So all the silver, the gold, and the vessels of brass and iron were to be consecrated to the Lord. They were to be set apart for the treasury of the Lord. God made that clear. And while the victory at Jericho was sweet, things here now are getting ready to take a very bitter turn. Things at MBT have been very sweet for 15 years, have they not? Very sweet. But listen, if things are going to go from sweet to bitter, and this is true, this is true of us corporately, but this is also true of us individually, what we're going to see this morning. If things are going to go from sweet to bitter, the two things that we're going to look at this morning will absolutely be why. And there could be other things as well. But these two are so large that I promise you, when churches go from sweet to bitter, when believers go from winning to losing, from victory to defeat, mark it down. Number one, secret sin. Secret sin. God said in Joshua 6.18, when ye take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. When you see this little word, ye, this personal pronoun in your King James Bible, is letting you know that it is plural. That God is addressing a group of people. So God was talking to the nation as a whole here. Ye. 
But verse 1 says that it was Achan, singular, not Israel, plural, who took of the accursed thing. In God's mind, listen, it didn't matter if it was one or 100 who brought the accursed thing into the camp. The moment that they did, the entire camp was contaminated. The entire camp was at risk. This is why the Bible says the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. The whole camp now is in jeopardy. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 6, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, he asked. Although a man in this church was known to be in an egregious sin. The church at Corinth thought things were going pretty well. They were glorying. (laughs) And here's a man who is known to be in a sin that was so dark and egregious that not even the Gentiles, Paul said, not even the Gentiles are living this way. Something had been brought into the church that was highly contagious and it placed the entire church at spiritual risk. And what was that? Leaven. Leaven in Scripture is a picture of sin and false doctrine. And it is highly contagious. So listen, to men and to women, please hear me. Sin is never between us and God alone. Never. Name the sin. Sin is never between us and God alone. When the, was the anger of the Lord kindled against Achan or Israel? Israel. This was not between Achan and God alone, was it? No, Achan's decision brought the entire camp into his sin and the consequences of it. Can I just tell you, there have been times in my life where if I could, I would have negotiated with God. God, please, just keep this between you and me. Do not allow this to affect my family. Sin may take place on an individual level but the consequences will always be collective. It's never just between you and God. It never just stops there. As we're going to see, the ripple effect of Achan's sin was felt in the worst way. Churches over the years have been gutted. They've been gutted spiritually and emotionally by pastors who behind the curtains were adulterers, thieves, men of ungodly character, men who grieved the Spirit of God and did immeasurable damage. And many of us are familiar with those stories. Many of us have lived them. Many of us have been in the room when the curtains were officially pulled back and all got to see who this man really was, and how he was really living. I know of situations where pastors 
To say that they were not a one-woman man would be putting it lightly. But would you notice, Achan was not a priest. That's not what we're dealing with here. Again, I'm not excusing any uh, moral behavior that pastors have exemplified over the years. I think it's awful. But we're not dealing with a pastor or a priest here. History says, listen, pastors are not the only people capable of causing great harm to a church. Did you know that? Pastors are not the only people who can cause great harm in a church. A sober reality is that some people in the church, this is just a sober reality, okay? There are people in the church, and I would be a fool to think that Midtown is exempt, given our size. But there are some people in the church who lead double lives. They do. And they are usually ignorant of two things. The first is they're ignorant of the fact that their sin has a direct effect on their family and their church. It does. Their sin has an effect on their family and their church. They downplay that because as far as they're concerned, well, their family doesn't know and the church doesn't know. So they foolishly ascribe to the lie that says what people don't know won't hurt them. That's a lie. Because trust me, if you're harboring sin in your life, I promise you, it is affecting your family and it's affecting this church. The second thing they're ignorant of is there are no secret sins. That doesn't exist. Psalm 90 verse 8. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. Jeremiah 23, verse 24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Many conclude that what they're hiding will remain hidden. And the longer we hide that, the more confident we become in believing that it will remain hidden. See, I've gotten really good about covering my tracks. I've gotten really good about making sure that no matter where you look, you can't see this. I'm that good. And as time goes on, our confidence grows and it increases. No one's going to know. It is impossible for anyone to find out. You might want to consider this. Psalm 139, verse 11, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. See, that darkness is already exposed by the light. You couldn't cover it if you tried. Why? Because God is what? 
light, and in him is no what? Darkness at all. And because he is light, listen, God always exposes hidden darkness. You can lie. You can manipulate. God always exposes hidden darkness. God will take an A-bomb to your plan. He will destroy it. That security system that you've built to protect and hide that sin, eventually God will take a sledgehammer to it. Achan thought he had done a good job hiding his sin, but I can only imagine how his heart began to race as it was becoming clearer and clearer that the doors are about to be opened very wide on this. The curtains are about to be pulled back. This thing that you've been hiding, Achan, is getting ready to be exposed. So I want to just give you three things here before we go to the next point. Listen, we all deal with sin. I understand that. There's nothing good that dwells in this flesh, and there's nothing good that dwells in yours. Romans 7.18, I understand that. The flesh is weak. It never gets better. It never gets stronger. It never becomes more righteous. That is my reality, and that is yours. But that is not what's on the table here. As I've heard it said before, and I agree with it, all sin is sin, but not all sin is the same. The issue here is that this was dark and diabolical. Achan crossed the line on the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And it wasn't that he stole from just anyone. He stole from God. Because what he stole belonged to the treasury of the Lord, not Achan. This was dark. So here's what we need to know. If you are hiding darkness, it is affecting your family. It is affecting this church. And it is affecting this class. It is not just between you and God. It is affecting your family, this church, and this class. Two, please, God's mercy is not permission to continue in that sin. It is so that you will repent of it. This is the mistake that we make. We say, well, you know, <laughs> man, I, I, yeah, I know this is not right. I know this is grievous to the Lord. I know I shouldn't have this in my life. But you know what? I, I, you know, I, I, keep, I keep stumbling and tripping and falling in it. And, but then, man, God is merciful and gracious. And so I'm just going to keep doing this, right? It's okay. This is God's way of letting me know, I understand. You're weak. You can't help it. My mercy will always be here. My mercy endures forever. I'm rich in grace. So yeah, you're, you're free to continue. And every time you, 
You, you, you trip and, and you fall there. I'll, I'll, I'll be there to wash you up and, and clean you up with my mercy and my grace, right? And the flesh says, see, man, you're good. You, you can keep doing that and you can count on the mercy and grace of God. That's foolish. And at best, dangerous. The clock is ticking. It's ticking. And here's the third thing. No matter how well you believe you are covering your tracks, it is just a matter of time before God brings it into the light for all to see. No matter how good you think you're covering it. There comes a point in the hiding of sin where the conversation is not about weakness anymore. No, what happens is, is the longer we hide something and, and the more we, 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 we keep going back to it like a dog going back to its vomit, and we keep doing this over and over and over again, listen, it takes a mocking turn. It takes a mocking turn where now we begin to mock God. So we're coming to church. We're even tithing. We're even discipling. We're in ministry. We're in LFBI. We're going on mission trips. We're doing all those things. While over here, I've got this closet where I've got this darkness. I've got this sin. And God says, wait a minute, so you're, you're going to stand up and, and you're going to teach people and, and you're going to tell them how to walk and how to live and, and all of that while, while you're living like this? You know, in the Old Testament, God had a very strong warning to Aaron and his sons, the Levitical priests. You know what that warning was? You go back, you see this in the book of Exodus. Where God made it clear, Moses, you make sure Aaron and his sons understand that when they come to minister in the tabernacle, they had better wash their hands and their feet because if they don't, they will die. In this country, we celebrate performance. We love it. We love people who are really good at what they do and Man, we celebrate talent and all that. Man, look at him, look at her, look at... And that, that spirit, it, it, it begins to permeate in the church. Where as long as people can perform, as long as they can sing like an angel, as long as they can preach with power and conviction and impress people, as long as they can do what they do, and we're all impressed by it, then that means that they're okay. That's not how God looks at it. What God looks at is, just, okay, I see what you're doing, but I am looking as intently on who you are. God says, I am paying attention to you as much as I do when you're in public. I'm paying as much attention to you in private. God says, I monitor your thoughts. I'm watching. 
Would you hear from God today from Isaiah 55, 6, and 7? Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. You know when God can be found? God can be found in the space that he gives you for repentance. God says you want to take advantage of that. But if you choose not to, when that day comes where this party comes to a violent close, I won't be found. God says, I am warning you. I'm warning you. And I'm calling you to repent, not tomorrow. And I'm not calling you to do better. I'm not calling you to, to manage this, if you would. To get it under control. This is the lie that we tell ourselves that we believe, right? I've got this. No, you don't. No, you don't. This isn't the last time, is it? How many times have you said that? How many times have you said this is the last time? And it's not. God says, I am calling you to come clean. No lies, no manipulation, no justification, no excuses. God, I know you see it. I know you know. Take God at his word here in Isaiah. Being ignorant of the state of the flock, Joshua sought to move forward in the next conquest. And that's where we jump now to verse 2 of Joshua chapter 7. And Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon, on the east side of Bethel, and spake unto them, saying, Go up and view the country. And the men went up and viewed Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said unto him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai, and make not all the people to labor thither, for they are but few. It's been said wisely. I agree with it. The only thing that we learn from history is that we learn nothing from history. True, right? Joshua <laughs> was a fantastic military general, but he failed here. He failed here. Listen, if anyone knew, if anyone knew the dangers of heeding to the counsel of spies, was it not Joshua? <laughs> 
How could Joshua have forgotten being there with Caleb when those spies turned the nation against God? And there was Joshua and Caleb rinsing their clothes and being devastated and torn because the nation was listening to these spies versus taking God at his word. How could Joshua have forgotten that? So when these spies come back and their report essentially was, we got this. And Joshua just went with it. Oh, this was a great failure. That should have prompted him. Wait a minute, God. I think I've seen this movie before. (laughs) I need to pray. Because had he done that, you think God would have revealed to him the situation of the camp? Absolutely. Listen, this is something that is very interesting, and it sobers me. It should sober you. Do you understand, have you not learned that God will let you go? He'll let you go. He'll he'll let you go with what you think and and, and what you believe and your opinion and what you feel. God, okay, go for it. God will let you go. Knowing what awaits you. He he let him go. God didn't intervene. Hey, Joshua, let's talk, buddy. Things turn from sweet to bitter through, listen, our self-sufficiency. That great victory at Jericho was not wrought by Israel, was it? That was wrought by the hand of God. But their quiet admission here was, We don't need you for this, God. We got it. We can handle this. See, the message of self-sufficiency is always that we don't need God. And listen, I love this church. I love this church. If it would please the Lord to rapture me or, or have me take my last breath, from the Midtown Baptist Temple under the leadership of Sam Miles, I'm good. I mean that. Very content. I love this church. I love what God has done. I love what God is doing. I love what we're trusting God for. There is no place I'd rather be than where I am right now with the people I'm with. But we've heard the stories of a very humble beginning, haven't we? A small people with limited resources. And 15 years later, we stand in awe, don't we? We should. But here's where self-sufficiency takes a very dangerous turn. Listen, self-sufficiency deceives us into believing that we are not desperate. It does. It deceives you into believing you're not desperate. You got it. You can handle it. You can fill in that blank. You can solve that problem. You can handle that ministry situation. You name it. You got it, right? MBT is a different church in more ways than one. I mean that good and maybe not so good. I understand we're a flawed group. 
We've got blemishes. I, we're, listen, we're not a finished product. We never will be. I was telling a pastor once, uh, he was asking about Midtown. And I said, hey, one of the things about Midtown you'll want to know is we don't major in polish. Okay? We just don't. Uh, Midtown culturally can be gritty, and, and it is what it is, okay? So, but I will tell you that one of the things that we've heard from a number of pastors who visit here is they are absolutely blown away by our Tuesday night prayer service. They're blown away. How in the world can you get this many people to gather on a Tuesday night? I mean, we're talking about pastors with churches larger than ours, and they can't get 50 people to come on a Wednesday night. What Man, what are you guys putting in the water around here? How have you tricked these people? I mean, praise the Lord, we got our balcony back, right? We need it. <laughs> we need the balcony on Tuesday nights, don't we? The Tuesday night prayer service, listen, for us at Midtown, it's not a lesser service. It's not the B service. So Sunday is, is the A situation, and then Tuesday nights, that, that's, you know, that's just, you know, if you can, great, if not, no big deal. Oh, no, it's a very big deal. Listen, the growth of MBT on Sunday mornings is the result of Tuesday nights. <laughs> it is. We know this. It, it, Mid Midtown, listen, when we came back in 2010, Midtown, including children, was a church of around 250. Last Sunday, there were 650 people here. You say, how'd that happen? Well, you know, Sam is just so sharp, and boy, I tell you what, man, he's got a great staff, and these guys, man, you get them in a room, and they think so well, and, and, and that's how it happens. Forget about it. <laughs> no way. That would be an insult to Almighty God. No, Midtown has gone from what it was when we came to what it is because our God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. Despite us. Listen, one of the signs of self-sufficiency, please hear me, is a low appetite for private and corporate prayer. Prayerlessness sends a strong message to God. That message is, I don't need you. I've got it. I don't need to pray. I've got this figured out. I've got it worked out. I'm good. Joshua eventually prayed, didn't he? He did. Look at verse 4. So there went up thither of the people about 3,000 men, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai smote of them about 30 and 6 men, for they chased them from before the gate even unto Shabaram, and smote them in the going down, wherefore the hearts of the people melted and became as water. 
Newsflash, they didn't have it. Newsflash, they needed God. Newsflash, this was a massive failure. Massive. And this type of failure happens corporately in churches, and it happens privately in our lives when we take this same approach, this self-sufficient, which this world is whispering to you all the time. This world is telling you all the time, you don't need anybody. You don't. You don't have to wait on God for anything. You don't need the church. You've got this. You can do this. You're capable. You're able. And, and subtly, we drink that Kool-Aid. We buy that newspaper and we read it and we believe it. And it shows. It shows. It shows in how we pray or don't pray. It shows how we prioritize that. Listen, prayerlessness, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I think to God, it is probably as laughable as it is insulting. Because if you knew how weak you were, you would understand how desperate you are. And that would keep you on your knees. Verse 6, And Joshua rent his clothes and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the Lord until the the eventide. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. Now he's praying. (laughs) Now he's desperate. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore hast thou at all brought this people over Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side, Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turneth their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it and shall environ us round and cut off our name from the earth. And what wilt thou do unto thy great name? Sadly, this is what it takes to actually move some of us to actually pray. It takes disaster. It takes failure. It takes God pulling the curtains back and exposing us. And now we're falling on our face. Now we're desperate. Oh, God, please. We gather on Tuesday nights and Friday mornings corporately. You know why? Because we know we don't have it. Because we know we can't. We can talk all day long about you know, inviting three people. I think that's great. We should all do that. We can, and I know Mark will will put countless hours into planning and preparing for our Christmas outreach and praise God. We can do all that. But if we don't pray, what's the point? (laughs) Do you have any idea? I know you do. Do you know how hard it is to win adults to Christ? In this country, statistically, it is almost impossible. Seriously, research shows this. But with God, all things are possible, right? 
not with our great planning. No, it's, it's our great faith. <laughs> God, please, please. We agree with the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 3, 4-6, And such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. This was Paul's response to those who were hating on him, despising him. Man, this guy's nothing. What, what, what kind of credentials does he have? What kind of letters of recommendation? Well, maybe he had them as a Jew, but, but now, what, I mean, he's supposed to be this great apostle. What, what's, what's so great about him? Paul says, I agree. I agree. I am insufficient. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. I'm nothing. My sufficiency is of God. I'm telling you, man, that lie is out there, guys, and is in your face all the time. The pride of life, be something. Be somebody. Make a name for yourself. Be ambitious. Achieve, accomplish. Get your name in lights. You can. You're able. <laughs> no. God, listen, this is honest. God, listen, I know I'm nothing, and I'm good with that. I need you, God, for everything. I agree with you, Lord, that without you, I can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Regardless of who attends or who doesn't attend, we're going to pray on Tuesday nights and we're going to pray on Friday mornings. For some, the reason for not attending Tuesday nights or joining us on Friday mornings is not because they are legitimately hindered. It's because they're just not desperate. They're not desperate. They look around and think all of this is just happening and this is how it should be. Do you understand that God did not owe nor does he owe Midtown these 15 years and all that he's done? Please, I'm going to close with this. The moment MBT chooses not to be desperate, The moment we think we got it, the moment that even if it is subconscious that we become self-sufficient, the moment that happens is the exact moment that we will make a hard turn from sweet to bitter. And we will have our own Joshua chapter 7. Lord, your word is so simple and so clear. I do pray that we would take heed to it. Thank you for what you've done and what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.